Welcome to Art Dad Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Bede. And this is a podcast where we try and provoke some feelings and thoughts and dad about contemporary and modern art. Yes, and I thought, you know, after the um, coloured wax being squeezed through the doors last week, um, you might have given me a reprieve and um, given me something a little more uh, palatable to look at this week, but it doesn't seem so. <laughs> well... <laughs> I thought you like animals, don't you? So I thought that this yeah, would kind yeah. of, you know, relate to that because this week's work is Merritt Oppenheim's Object, also known as Breakfast and Fur of 1936. Yes, and um, I was really surprised when I saw it. I suppose surprise is a polite word. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen it before? No, I haven't. Okay. Uh, well, so it was a real shock to the system. Well, would you like to describe this shocking object? Yeah, well, it's a um, cup, saucer and teaspoon, um, but they're all covered in fur, um, sort of um, dark honey-coloured fur, I suppose you'd describe it. And so, I mean, they're, they're sort of usual household objects, but the quite bizarre texture to see this fur and some of the fur is quite long and it sort of moves in walls around the saucer and inside the um, bottom of the cup and around the outside of the cup and on the spoon. Yeah so it's the fur of a Chinese gazelle which I'll give you the backstory to this work. So Merritt Oppenheim she was a, a German-Swiss artist and her grandmother, Lisa Wenger, was a, a beloved illustrator of children's books, so these sort of fairy tales. So she came from a sort of artistic background. She grew up mainly in Switzerland, but then when she was um, in her late teens or early 20s, she moved to Paris with the dream of becoming an artist. And there, who do you think she encountered? I don't know. I'm sure Paris was chock-a-block full of artists. <laughs> well, it's someone you really don't like. So the... um, we're, we're talking a really, really large class of people if we're talking in the art world because I'm very selective in my in <laughs> my uh, in in who cuts the grade. <laughs> she met Picasso. Oh, all right. Yeah. Um. So she was having. Uh, coffee or tea with Picasso and one of his um, girlfriends, Dora Ma, at this cafe in Paris. And Oppenheim was wearing a fur-coloured bracelet that she'd made and I think she later sold this design to Schiaparelli, the fashion house. And Picasso or Dora Ma, the, the stories um, differ, but one of them, probably Picasso, suggested that anything could be covered in fur. And Oppenheim's jokingly remarked back that that could include the cups and saucers before them on the table. Okay, so it was, uh, the, the origin was a sort of provocative joke. Yeah, and so, I mean, there's another version of the conversation where Picasso is more himself <laughs> and compliments her on the bracelet and then flirtatiously sort of observed there are many things he enjoys uh, that were improved when covered in fur and Oppenheim responded like tongue-in-cheek trying to get him to shove off said oh even this cup and saucer which I think knowing how Picasso was as a person is probably a more accurate description of the conversation. Yeah right and all this in front of his then girlfriend. Yeah, but I, I think he was also married at the time, so... Oh, okay. You know, so that oh, makes well, it fine. Different. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she then bought a teacup and saucer, you know, at a, a department store and covered them. And she had originally named the, the piece Cup, Saucer and Spoon, Covered and Fur, which is very prosaic. Um, but Andre Breton, who we'll get onto in a, in a minute, renamed it for this exhibition, um, the Exposition sur Elise d'Objet, in reference to Manet's painting Le Déjeuner sur l'Europe, you know, the, the lunch. Oh, the picnic on the, on the grass. Yes, which is, we'll also get back to that in a, a little while, but do you want to give your, your first feelings or impressions of this piece? I honestly find it very, very creepy because, um, you know, you don't associate fur with something that you'd um, put into your mouth. And, you know, uh, if you saw fur growing on something, you'd immediately think it was a fungus. I mean, it's as revolting as those pictures of vegetable men that you <laughs> introduced into one of our previous podcasts, which look like, you know, rotting bodies with fungus growing on them. And this this looks like something with fur growing on it. I mean, the only creatures I've seen actually eating fur or putting in their mouths are cats who, when they are sort of worried about something, tear out clumps of fur and you find it on the carpet. But no, this is just, this is just not nice. I, I don't know why someone would do this. Well, <laughs> I mean, I guess... We'll, we'll get into all that, but I just wanted to, um, I mean, you've had bad experiences with cats and teacups before. Oh, yeah. Um, it wasn't so much a teacup as a as a glass of water. Um, one of our cats, Mr. Darcy, was next to me on the sofa and I had a glass of water next to me and I got up. And then when I came back, I just took a sip from the water and I don't know whether the delay was deliberate and the warning uh, was uh, deliberately late, but you said, by the way, Darcy drank from that glass. So um, <laughs> I was drinking from a glass which no doubt had cat fur in it because he drank from it. Um, yeah, so that that has scarred me somewhat. Maybe that's impacting your own ideas about this piece. But to get to the, I guess, the, the why of someone would make this I mean it started as a joke as we can see you know or I guess a, a joking moment of inspiration um Oppenheim later herself called the piece a quote youthful joke and had her own mixed feelings about it and I do think that this is one of these cases where you know undoubtedly to me this is a work of art and it's accepted as, as such it was the the first work by a female artist purchased by the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, uh, in New York, having been purchased after appearing in the London International Surrealist Exhibition and the Fantastic Art Data Surrealism Exhibition of uh, the winter of 1936-1937 at MoMA. So, I mean, it is a very significant work of art, but because it does have this joking background and, you know, it sort of pokes fun at a lot of things, which we'll get into in a minute. I think this is also a case where there are people who view this object and take it too seriously. I mean, she also she also resisted, I guess, becoming the artist who covered everything in fur. You know, after she made this object, you know, people were saying to her, oh, you know, you could cover this or that in fur. And she said, you know, no, I, I don't want to be the artist who covers everything infer you know like you have some superstar artists today who 
sort of do one thing um, because it becomes so easily saleable. But she resisted that and she did a lot of work in other media across her life because she was very young when she made this. I think she was only 22 and she lived into the 80s. I mean, can we just talk a bit about, you mentioned surrealism. I thought, uh, first of all, I don't know what the meaning of the technical meaning of the word surrealism is. Uh, All I know is that, you know, there are these pictures by Salvador Dali of the clocks melting, which um, seemed to me to be sort of something from a psychotic dream. Um, So what is surrealism and why is this fur-covered cup surrealistic? Well, so surrealism was founded by the poet André Breton uh, in Paris in 1924 when he wrote this um, piece called The Surrealist Manifesto. And I'm sure you would say that, you know, as soon as anyone starts writing a manifesto, you know that they're a bit um, interesting. I mean, the Unabomber wrote a manifesto, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he did. And I mean, of course, Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, so swimming in manifestos. But um, so Breton, he, the whole, I guess, basis of surrealism was that it proposed that the Enlightenment had suppressed the so-called superior qualities of the irrational and unconscious mind. Um, and so their goal was to liberate thought and language and human experience from what they called the oppressive boundaries of rationalism. So they were really wanting to, I guess, unleash the minds of the masses. And, you know, it's it's pertinent that you bring up Marx and his manifesto because Breton was also a Marxist. So I guess, you know, it was linked to this broad idea that you could unleash the creativity and the masses of, you know, ordinary people and enhance their lives. So, I mean, is it... I'm not clear, is it a form of giving expression to the darker reaches of the mind or dream sequences, or is it some sort of class liberation? I I mean, it wasn't as far as my understanding of it is, you know, it's not directly a class liberation, but I'm more sort of pointing to the fact that... um, because Breton would also have been influenced by those ideas. And so this idea of, you know, you have Marx, who's, I guess, looking at unleashing the proletariat from um, the oppression of the upper classes. And then you have Breton, who's sort of taking this idea of unleashing or liberating into the sort of mental realm. So the, the other, you know, talking about the far reaches of the mind that you're sort of mentioning, the surrealists, you know, they were mostly very avid followers of Freud and Jung. So they were really obsessed um, with dreams and the unconscious mind as a source of artistic creativity and very interested in symbolism as well. So aside from the fact that if you or I have a dream about something, we might say, oh, well, this might be, you know, I might be dreaming this because of that. And, you know, it's a symbol in my unconscious mind. They also sort of a lot of these artists developed their own symbolism schemes, I guess, which they would use in their artwork, like you see in Leonora Carrington. She's another female surrealist, and she had a lot of symbols of there's a horse and a bird in her artwork. So they would sort of create their own symbolic schemes. And because, you know, they were so interested in breaking free of reason and unlocking the con- unconscious mind, it also questioned this whole foundation of traditional artistic production, you might say, which relies on the idea that the artwork is the product of a single artist's creative imagination. Okay, so 
as I understand it, then surrealism is the word means um, beyond real or almost unreal. Is it? Is, would that be correct? Yes, I wouldn't say unreal because to them they were reflecting their own inner reality, their unconscious reality of the mind, unmediated by what they saw as rationalism that was taking over their ability to have that kind of unconscious experience. Okay. I mean, this almost sounds like the artistic equivalent of, you know, those romantic poets like Coleridge who used to dope <laughs> themselves up and then write poems. And um, and they were often very, um, well, the meaning was very opaque. Perhaps they were almost meaningless. So, and I mean, I've never really taken to them. So I think this uh, this school of art is is of the same ilk, except that it's not induced by drugs, but they're 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 perhaps recording the strange images that might occur to you in a dream, or else saying, if you were in a dream and you saw a teacup and saucer, you might see it covered in fur, like in a dream. You know, and I guess this is where we do sort of get towards the teacup. Like in a dream, you have things that are familiar. They're like real life, but there's something off about them. Okay, yeah. You know, and you can sort of imagine how, yes, a, a teacup and a saucer is something that you might come across in a dream. You know, I mean, have you ever had any very weird dreams? Actually, let's explore your unconscious. This could get scary. <laughs> How many sessions do we have? <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, I'm sure we all have, you know, bizarre juxtapositions of place in particular. And, um, you know, when I was a child, I used to dream of being chased by a lion and having my legs leaden and I couldn't outpace the lion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone has has very strange dreams and images that aren't correct in inverted commas in uh, relation to what they are in real life and can be quite sinister. Yeah. In the background, I'm writing down this information about these dreams you've had so I can analyze them later and use them against you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so you have this sort of sense of... Um, something that's semi-real, but perhaps also goes more to the core, I guess, of your unconscious without reasoning everything away. And, but I mean, the sort of idea of, you know, questioning this foundation of uh, traditional artistic production. Another thing that you might be interested in is that Breton, this prime surrealist, promoted um, this game, the, the Exquisite Corpse. And you know that game, don't you? Um, oh, where you have the, I mean, we've played this where you, you have a piece of paper and one person draws the head and folds it over and then the next person draws the torso and then carries on and on and you unfold it and it turns out to be this, um, quite, what's the word, um, contrasting features in the same body. Yeah. So, I mean, normally when ours were unfolded, they were quite Frankenstein-esque, but I mean, it's a fun yes. Game. So you sort of have this collaboration um, of imaginations and it actually derives from this game of uh, like collective prose writing with, you know, a similar form of people 
you know, it's like choose a noun, choose a adjective, whatever, and it comes out in sentences. And it came from this particular sentence, uh, which read, the exquisite corpse shall drink the new wine. So you have, yeah, I guess all these things which at first glance are very strange, but maybe when they come from within your own unconscious, they aren't that strange. I mean, it's always very hard to describe a dream to another person. Yes, and and so often, of course, what is... um you know, vivid, the minutes after you wake from a dream suddenly just dissipates in your mind and you can't recall it. Yeah, and yet you, you, I guess, sort of know that it's come from within your mind, so it's still there somewhere. But to to move on a little bit to issues of gender, which I know you're very interested in. Well, as long as I need to caveat that and say as long as we're not going to undermine the patriarchy, I'm willing to accept gender discussions. That seems like a massive caveat. I mean, (laughs) that sort of ruins the whole um, basis of the conversation. Maybe you'll enjoy this part then. You'll be pleased to hear, I guess, that there was quite a dominance of men in surrealism. Okay. Yeah, suddenly you're warming up to it. So because it was so <laughs> it was so closely connected to Freud, I mean, you know, he had all of his symbols of, you know, the cigar and the purse and whatnot, because that symbolism was so linked to surrealism, there was a natural affinity. But it, there was also the fact that, I guess, uh, male surrealists saw women more as artistic objects or a sort of problem or a puzzle to be solved. I mean, Breton himself, Breton, sorry, I should say, wrote in 1929 that, quote, the problem of women is the most marvellous and disturbing problem in all the world. Oh, that's that's a very interesting take, and I'll reserve comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't find mum to be a disturbing problem. No, I mean, I'm certainly not, and I mean, I'm conscious that probably 51% of our audience are, are female, if, that's, if it complies with the um, ratios in society. So, yes. Uh, like someone in a police interview, I would say no comment. <laughs> there was a dominance of men in surrealism and they did have quiet sexist attitudes themselves, but there were uh, women surrealists. So, of course, Oppenheim, also Leonora Carrington, who I mentioned before, and also, of course, Frida Kahlo. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, those some of those pictures with her in the hospital bed and all the tubes coming out and skulls and little monkeys. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that that is um, undoubtedly surrealist. I didn't realise that she was classified as such. Yes, I mean, you can see really there, and I know that you like Frida Kahlo, perhaps, you know, that's an easier way or more accessible way if you would like to develop a liking for surrealism. Because, I mean, in her work, because it's so biographical, you really do see the symbolism. I mean, the way that she depicts herself, you know, suffering but living through pain of all the operations she went through, you know, it's very clear. Yes, you don't really have to look that far beneath the surface to see the the symbolism. No, but another reason why surrealism was also attractive to women was because it demanded freedom for human beings, you know, unleashing people from, you know, the the rationalist post-enlightenment world. Um, It could also offer freedom to women and that focus on personal reality and emotion 
also means that a lot of a lot of people I don't know if I agree with this say that it's it was sort of particularly suited to women but I mean it certainly did provide a realm in which women could depict their inner realities sure okay well um so it, there, there was a a space then for women to operate in the same school as it were as, as men although they'd initially dominated yeah so i mean it's very complex i guess sort of gendered history of surrealism but but i think you know this sort of comes into the work that we're talking about this week because of course it's a very it's a trope of art history history generally that the domestic space is considered the women's space and oh yes it's a quintessential getting a cup of tea for your man (laughs) (laughs) yes and then you bring it out in this furry cup and he never asked for a cup of tea again no (laughs) no but um so i mean of course by having these sort of very domestic items you know i mean it's just a teacup um, but covering them in fur, she gives the domestic realm a sort of sense of the wild. I mean, she turns this object, which would normally be contained to um, a home, into an animal. So, I mean, I guess you have a lot of questions that come out of that. You know, what does that say about those who were considered to dominate the domestic space? What does that say about a person who would use such a cup and saucer? Yeah, I mean, it's... It is very, as I, you know, sort of creepy, and um, because you expect the texture of china and crockery to be smooth and to not be organic in nature, it is very strange to find something like that made of of fur, as it would be if it was made of skin or anything else. Yeah, I mean, in that way that you say, you know, you expect it to be smooth. Um, but it's furry, you know, it's something that isn't the way that it so-called should be. It becomes subversive because it's really the antithesis of that smoothness. It also, in that way, you know, it like takes away the, the physical and the metaphorical solidity that we would expect of such ordinary items. So you sort of destabilise the object and your expectations of what a certain object might be. But, I mean, if you extend it further... You can say that you destabilize, I guess, expectations about domestic space and femininity. Yes, I mean it, it is a a rather queasy thing to see, and um, you know you wouldn't entertain the idea of of drinking from it. So it sort of keeps you at bay, and um, and uh, has a, 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 an underlying sinister aura about it. Yeah, I mean it's quite, I guess, anxiety provoking I think because it's not just the fact when you think about it that it's a teacup covered in fur it's that it's a furry thing that's not an animal like it works both ways you know and it's a sort of prosaic object but it's alive but I mean in a way it can also be kind of I mean I find the animalistic aspects of it you know like you want to touch it to me like I don't want to drink from it but I'd like to yeah. pat it. I mean, the fur looks soft, and it's... as I say, it has these sort of curved lines that it makes and the way it looks, you know, it's sort of alluring and it's tactile. But at the same time, because it is so anxiety-provoking, at the same time that it pulls you in, it pushes you away. Yeah, it, it does have that duality about it. So, I mean, what did people think of this at the time? Was it seen as shocking and 
and um and strange and vaguely repulsive well when it was shown at um moma in new york for the first time there was a newspaper headline that read quote the fur-lined school uh, the fur-lined cup school of art which really sort of captures the mix of um confusion and shock of looking at it but i think also points to the fact that because this exhibition where it was shown at um, MoMA was a, you know, it wasn't just about Oppenheim, it was just a, one object from her, it was about surrealism more generally. I think it also shows the way that the press, when writing about art, can lead us astray a bit. I mean, obviously the object is made to shock and confuse. I mean, it's it's born out of a joke, but the idea that it was a fur-lined cup school of art, I mean, it's very like they're rolling their eyes at the artists, blowing out one object to undermine the whole movement, if you know what I mean. Yes. So, and I mean, they, they're just, it's the objects, not the movement that they're focusing on. Oh, yeah, I, I can see that. And it also, I think, you know, undermines spirit of creativity i mean we can strip away all of the symbolism and everything from this object and just think about you know the incident that it was born out of or just oppenheim's creativity in making such a weird object i mean it is an act of creativity and yet she also pushed against, like I said earlier, this idea that she would now become the artist who covered everything in fur. You know, it wasn't like she was, I guess, trying to make a trope of herself. So there weren't, you know, a series of furs, just like there was a series of, um, is it Manet or Monet? I never get the, <laughs> uh, who did the lily, uh, the water lilies. <laughs> that was Monet. <laughs> Isn't oh, okay. that, that line in um, one of the Oceans movies where... You know, George Clooney's character asks the wife, who's a curator, what's the difference between Manet and Monet? I can never get it right. Which one married his mistress is the, like, the clue he uses to try and remember which is which. Right, yeah. I, I think if I was sent along by an anonymous investor to an art auction, I'd probably end up buying the wrong piece. <laughs> Would you have bought this if you saw it on display in 1936? No, quite definitely not. And I, I think it would be, I'd be frightened to have it in the house, actually, because the potential of all the germs and whatnot in the fur, it would just be too spooky. So I guess we've come to the <laughs> the conclusion then of um, this conversation that you don't like this piece. That That's correct. That's very perceptive of you. <laughs> I mean, yes, we've talked about all the psychological and artistic underpinnings but i still don't like it is it more interesting to you when you consider the um the symbolism and you know the surrealist movement than if you just saw it alone yes i mean in the context of surrealism uh it, you know it, it makes me more interested in surrealism without liking this actual piece well, you may be happy to learn then that she did um, Oppenheim. She, I mean, she's known as an artist who is not really easily definable. I mean, this is a surrealist object, but she worked across abstraction, surrealism. I mean, she is someone 
who, I mean, it's said that she sort of struggled with her creativity after this object, this particular object made her so famous, which is often an issue for young artists who have early success. You know, they become known for this one object and then it's either hard to live up to or it's expected that everything will be in that style before you've, I guess, had more of an opportunity to explore different styles. But she really didn't fall into that trap and had a very, very long career until I think she was 73 or 75 when she died sometime in the 80s. And, you know, she'd had a very broad body of work. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So maybe we can find you a different Oppenheim. I hope that you'll like (laughs) Great. Well, do you have any advice falling out of this? Yes, it's rather expensive advice, I must say. And I need to trace it back to when I was at school, um, we were taken into the film projection room of the school and shown this movie about advice, you know, teaching us that smoking is bad. And they had these x-rays of people's lungs who'd smoked and, you know, the lungs were all darkened and clotted and they said well you know if you smoke you're going to get lungs full of tar and nicotine um and then of course subsequently you know one's heard all about how terrible the lungs of people look like who have asbestosis and my advice is and i guess i should take this advice myself in fact all the members of our family should is if you have had a lot of cats i think you should get a scan perhaps a cat scan Oh, <laughs> of of your lungs because can you imagine the amount of cat fur suspended in the air on our carpets that we've been breathing in over the last 25 years and the shocking effect it would have had on our lungs so in the theme of fur i think you know we should like the surrealists who looked inward into the mind i think we should look inward into the lungs and, and find out how clogged our lungs are that is really a I guess a disgusting but maybe wise piece of advice. And I think we should <laughs> emphasize that you do vacuum. Um, yes. <laughs> but actually, maybe a better solution is that instead of allowing, you know, the spur to go into the air, we should create some kind of filtration system so that we can collect the fur and then cover objects with the fur and make a whole lot of fake Oppenheims and sell yeah. them. Could have a surrealist school. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> actually a better solution. But I think, yes, everyone should get their lungs. Forget about uh, smoking. It's cat fur that's the real issue. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode. I hope you're not as um, anxious about the cup as dad is. Um, and we hope you'll be able to join us next time. We would love it if you would be able to rate, follow and review our podcast if possible. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.